Thanks for tuning into Charlottesville Soundboard. I'm your host, Mary Garner McGee. Soundboard airs every other Saturday at 6 a.m. on WTJU 91.1 FM and also comes to you as a podcast that belongs to the Virginia Audio Collective. This week, we talk about Albemarle County's decision to bring more students back to in-person school in November. But first, we hear from the creative team behind Lost Home, Win Home. It's an original work by Charlottesville native Shelby Marie Edwards, and it's running at Live Arts this weekend. In this one-woman show, Edwards interrogates her experience growing up in Charlottesville in relation to the white supremacist rally of August 2017. I'm just a quirky black kid who's happy to be uh, performing in her hometown. Hi, my name is Shelby Marie Edwards. I am the writer of the piece Lost Home Went Home, and I also have the uh, fortunate blessing of being able to perform it as well. Lost Home Went Home is it's about a lot of different things, but at its core, it's about my experience growing up in Charlottesville in relation to the Unite the Right rally that happened in 2017 downtown. Hi, my name is T. Ames. I use they, them, theirs pronouns, uh, and I'm the director for Lost Home Win Home at Live Arts, opening this weekend. Um, my main role for this show has been... Um, finding a lot of ways to tell the story in a way that it hasn't been told before. I'm grateful that we did grow up together. So a lot of that she talks about, I know about firsthand. So this is one of the first times in our adulthood that we've worked together in this capacity. I'm Ayana Marcus. I am stage manager for Lost Home When Home, and I use um, she, her, hers pronouns. I am newer to Charlottesville. Um, I moved in January of 2019, so I was not here for the events that took place in August of 2017. So I'm just uh, very honored and pleased to be a, a part of this team and to continue to expand my presence in the arts in this community. Thank you all so much for that. Um, can you, Shelby, tell me a little bit about how you wrote this play, like what your process was like, where it kind of started? Of course. So I always knew that I wanted to write a piece about August 12th and August 11th and even the other rallies that happened before because I was flabbergasted with the amount of misinformation that came to fruition, however it did, after the events. And so so August 11th and 12th happened about a week before I moved to Chicago. And so I had a really unique experience of having a lived experience and knowing what happened. And then a week later, I was in a whole other world where everyone was like, oh, Charlottesville is this awful place. And I was like, well, it's not only awful. There, There's so many other things to Charlottesville that make it so complicated. And I knew I wanted to tell it in an artistic medium. So it really started around then. And I started writing this more officially the summer of 2018 when I figured out there was a festival I wanted to do, and I figured that would be a really nice benchmark for me to tell this story. I, I like to tell stories about rite of passage moments. I find that those, are, they, those carry the most stakes as far as storytelling for myself and most people, and I also wanted to tell a story that was somewhat cyclical, a story that truly did follow this life, death, and transformation that is specific to the African aesthetic, but is also a very powerful way to tell stories. So that's really where it came from. 
This is a question for everybody. Can you kind of tell me about one moment in this play that is especially meaningful to you or that really sticks with you every time you rehearse it or perform it? So first of all, for context, Shelby plays about 11 different characters during the show. So there are two moments in the show that really stick out to me. I don't want to give too much away. Um, But whenever Shelby plays her younger self, it always makes me laugh a lot because I remember that Shelby very fondly. (laughs) But I would have to say my favorite character um, is just a moment towards the beginning of the show that we have affectionately started calling the minstrel character. We kind of took from the original Jim Crow character. It's hard to watch as a Black person because that's how you know that we were once portrayed. But I think it's also hard to watch as any other race because who wants to remember a time in our history that's not great, that's not um, something that we're proud of. I think my favorite part of the piece that I get to perform is the very end. And I I know it's because discovery is so important to me as an actor, but also as a person and as an artist. And at the end of the show, that is when the character discovers home or defines it in in a very clear way that makes sense to the character so i i always love coming to the 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 penultimate moment yes and i'll i'll just say that uh, there is a certain moment in the show uh, not to give it all away but shelby recounts a moment in her childhood where she is called a um, out of her name in a sense and it always hits home for me. I think most of us, especially as, as black people, can remember um, as a child when the, the first time that we really encountered certain forms of racism um, in our lives. And so it's, it's a poetic moment. It's very poignant and it's just very solemn. And that one always just hits me in a particular way. So you mentioned earlier that you've performed in Chicago and New York. What's different about performing it here in Charlottesville? You mentioned that you were really excited and and you grew up here. Well, a lot of things are different for me. I think the stakes are a lot higher. Mm-hmm. And it's it's different performing this piece two blocks from where the events happened instead of 200 miles from where it happened. So there was a safety that came with performing it in New York and in Chicago that does not exist in Charlottesville. To be clear, I I don't think anything will happen. And we've certainly taken a few precautionary measures at the theater to make sure that we're safe as artists. Well, initially I was never going to do it in Charlottesville to be completely honest because I'd spoken with my family and it felt like the piece could, it could have positive conversations, but some people might not like that and I didn't want to put my family in jeopardy. I feel this has been the most in your face in the most genuine way ever. So that's been the most unique thing about this process. And also, this is the first time that I I got to be a little bit spoiled where I had my own team and um, my boyfriend made the set piece of the bench for me. He made it from scratch and I got the good treatment, like the off, 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 off Broadway treatment. So that's been a treat. So that, that's that on that. <laughs> Is there anything that you changed about how it's performed or were there any lines that changed? In the original version, I spoke more openly and I named people who were involved but for this story, 
and for the the other iterations I've done in Chicago, they leave out names. And that's not to say we leave out truth because I think that we tell a very true story, but it's about a community and it's about my perspective. So August 11th and 12th um, continues to come up in national conversations and recently even at like the first presidential debate. How do you all feel when you hear presidential candidates and people who don't have a connection to Charlottesville talk about these events? Ooh, that is a question. That is a question. Um, (laughs) Well, I I can start. Um, Whenever I hear other people talk about A12 who are not from Charlottesville, um, especially, like you said, in a setting like a presidential debate, for example, um, there's definitely a part of me that's frustrated, just flat out just pissed. Um, <laughs> uh, one, because they do not hear, right? Um, and that also brings up like the things that are going on in Flint, Michigan, right? We hear about Flint every now and again now, but that's still a major thing happening in Flint and we don't talk about it. And so I imagine that's the same type of thing. But what I don't appreciate and what's really hard, especially as a black person in Charlottesville who grew up here, um, is when we romanticize what Charlottesville was like before A12 happened. So I'm glad that with this show, Shelby um, starts to hit a little bit more of that and really gets into the nitty gritty details of like, this is what Charlottesville's been like. Um, and then A12 happened and this is how it affects us after that. But it doesn't mean that, uh, you know, it was good and then now it's bad. It's a mixture of both things. It sometimes feels like Charlottesville, to reference the show, it feels like Charlottesville is used as a pawn in a bigger conversation about whatever the player wants to talk about. And it's unfortunate that Charlottesville is wielded left and right, you know, literally and figuratively, depending upon how the person wants to swing the conversation. And a lot of times the people aren't from Charlottesville or the people don't really know what happened or they just want to press a button because they know it's, it's, it's a soft spot. Could you all talk a little bit more about what the title means? Unless it's a big surprise. I don't want to ruin any big surprises. Well, you know, I'll, I'll try not to ruin any, any uh, too big a surprises. So something that's important to me when I write my shows is that I talk about heavy topics. That's just, that's just part of my narrative. But I also make sure to bring in different aspects that anybody can relate to. So anybody has a home or anybody, any and everybody has something about home to talk about that might not be a physical home that might not it might just be a concept but everybody has something to work with when they think of home everybody has lost something everybody has won something everybody has played a game before and everybody has stakes and so it is those elements that we play with throughout the show so that that's what I can say about the title So this is going to be distributed virtually. Did you all encounter any challenges in bringing the show from in-person to the screen? You know, Ayana, do you want to tackle this first? Yes, I was about (laughs) to say, I was like, girl, you have a lot of that, (laughs) a lot of that answer. Yes, I will say, just also giving um, shout outs to the team at Live Arts for, and also uh, Lighthouse Studios as well for really, being the backbone of this and providing this um, outlet for us to be able to broadcast. When we first started um, rehearsing, um, even just rehearsing over Zoom um, was a, a new experience. 
and then making sure that all of that is captured correctly and then even transferring to the space. So, you know, even thinking about what is the blocking going to look like along with the lighting and also being able to broadcast it. We were we have to just keep that in mind from the very, very beginning. But in the end, uh, we had an, an incredible um, production staff. Learning how to direct someone who is not in the same room as you, uh, having to remember what stage right and stage left are, uh, even if you're looking at like a mirrored image, and then how that translates to being on stage, um, how you have to physicalize things and block things in a certain way so that it makes sense to a camera lens. Uh, it's been it's been crazy, <laughs> but I think because Shelby and I have long known each other for so long, we do have a slight shorthand. I think that took a lot of the frustration out of the process, and I'm very grateful for that. What do you all miss the most about live in-person theater? I feel like I miss sharing stories with people and being able to physically feel the the call and response that comes out of being with that community. Um, a big component of Black theater is call and response. Um, so being able to not only hear, but also see and experience and feel um, how whatever you're doing affects someone else um, in that room. And I miss the oohs and the ahs and the laughter and the talking on the side and like, ooh, you hear that? Like all of that. <laughs> um, it's very different than having a room fully, you know, 300, 400 people. Yeah, I was just going to say I miss the audience. I miss when even just going to theater and then just seeing what people laugh at and think it's funny versus what I do and just the camaraderie and being in, in, in the moment together. Um, so just the, the act and the ritual of going into space and being transported is, is what I miss. Yeah, I miss so much about it. I think what I miss the most is just the simple collection of people. I'm very much a people person. People are interesting to me. I miss hearing other people laugh. I miss opening night parties. There's just a social communal aspect of it that's that's hard to describe that I miss so very much. Is it exhausting to kind of relive those days in, in 2017, but also, like, it sounds like there are a lot of other really personal experiences in the play to, to perform that every night? There, there's something called Sankofa, or Sankofa, depending upon how you want to pronounce it, but it, it's this this idea of needing to go back and get something. And honestly, the show was a giant moment of Sankofa for me. I felt like when I left for Chicago, I'd forgotten something. It's not exhausting for me to do the show over and over again because it is so much a part of my story and we tell it in such a healthy fashion that I am not emotionally exhausted or even in trouble or danger in any of that while I'm performing the show. And theater is a beautiful way to heal from past things. And I think that Shelby has written an amazing piece that really allows not only herself and the people in the room to do that, but also for audiences. And so I'm hoping that those who especially were directly involved in A11 and A12 um, are able to see this piece if they would like to see it um, and find some sort of solace, some sort of healing from it. Is there anything about the play that I should have asked you about or that you, you want to share? I'm just 
just going to say, I really hope that folks who do tune in um, don't silence themselves when watching this piece. We're here. We're with you. Um, we made a, a point um, in our production of being able to still hear the people in the room around Shelby. So it's not just Shelby. Um, and so if you want to support, right, then then share your laughter, share your joy, share the moments of, of pain or confusion or or fear or whatever that may be. Um, and don't be afraid of, of feeling those things because we're feeling them too. Well, thank you all so, so much. Um, do you mind telling us where we can get tickets and everything? Um, the main way you can get tickets for Lost Home Win Home at Live Arts um, is through the website. So if you just go to livearts.org, uh, Lost Home Win Home is right there on the homepage. Click through that and you can get your tickets right there. Um, here's the thing. The show only has four performances, October 15th through the 18th. All of them are at 8 p.m. Um, and you have to get a ticket for those days because it won't be available after the 18th. And to clarify that it will be broadcast live. So it's not, oh, we're just showing a recording. So they, it's, so it's still, you can still get that beauty of live, unique theater every time. Mm -hmm. All right. Thank you all so much. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That was playwright Shelby Marie Edwards. T. Ames is the director and Ayanna Marcus is the stage manager. You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the Virginia Audio Collective. Both are a service of the University of Virginia. However, opinions expressed on this show are not the positions of the university. WTJU is supported by the Southern Environmental Law Center. During these challenging times, the Southern Environmental Law Center is remaining strong and resolute in protecting the fundamental right to clean air and clean water and a healthy environment for all. Before we move on to our next segment, I want to provide a little update from our episode last week. We talked to Anthony Guy Lopez, an Indigenous activist and alum of UVA. He and other Indigenous activists and supporters have been trying to get the university to take down its statue of George Rogers Clark on West Main Street. This statue depicts George Rogers Clark and Meriwether Lewis as they are about to attack a group of Indigenous Americans. It's a pretty violent scene. In addition to having that statue taken down, they want the university to invest in an Indigenous Studies Center and hire and promote more Indigenous faculty members. We also talked about Thomas Jefferson's thoughts and writings on the Indigenous people he encountered here in Virginia. His views on Indians were, it was more sort of the epitome of the noble savage, which I think it has been pretty much adopted by the University of Virginia in, it, in its policies and practices since it was founded, was that American Indians were doomed to, to become extinct. And um, our only path for survival was assimilation. If we continued to resist, Jefferson's prescription for us was removal or ex- and or extermination. Since we talked, University President Jim Ryan announced that the university would work to contextualize the Thomas Jefferson statue, but would not remove it. Ryan said, quote, I do not believe the statue should be removed, nor would I ever approve such an effort. As long as I am president, the University of Virginia will not walk away from Thomas Jefferson. He supported this decision, citing local historian Dr. Annette Gordon-Reed. Her position is well summed up in a recent interview she gave, where she said, 
There is an important difference between helping to create the United States and trying to destroy it. Both Washington and Jefferson were critical to the formation of the country and to the shaping of it in its early years. In response to this announcement from the university, Anthony Guy Lopez writes, For American Indians and African Americans, especially those of us associated with the University of Virginia, we welcome the opportunity to contextualize Jefferson. Contextualizing Jefferson requires that we look at some of the hard truths of his words and the damages Jeffersonian policies, practices, and ideas have caused to others. For the members of our Native American and Indigenous Studies at UVA group, I hope that we will be able to come together with the National American Indian Community and articulate what a proper contextualization of Jefferson should consist of, if it is to convey historical truths that have long been excluded from the grounds of UVA. I submit here something historically significant from one of the first UVA Board of Commissioners meetings in 1818, where Jefferson presented his curriculum plan for the future university. This quote from Jefferson reveals the animus that he held toward American Indians' reverence for their elders and teachings, the traditional knowledge of American Indians. What but education has advanced us beyond the condition of our indigenous neighbors? And what chains them to their present state of barbarism and wretchedness, but a besotted veneration for the supposed superlative wisdom of their fathers and the preposterous idea that they are to look backward for better things, and not forward, longing, as it would seem, to return to the days of eating acorns and roots rather than indulge in the degeneracies of civilization. That comes from the report of the Board of Commissioners for the University of Virginia to the Virginia General Assembly on August the 4th, 1818. Similar ideas are also found in Jefferson's notes on the state of Virginia and in his personal correspondence. For generations, these Jeffersonian ideas helped influence society as well as the university's thinking about the, quote, Indian question. I include this here because I think that, in regards to American Indians, UVA got started on the wrong foot by its founder. And again, that was written by Anthony Guy Lopez, chair of the Statue Consultation Committee for the Native American and Indigenous Studies at UVA group. In our next segment, we turn to the Charlottesville Community Engagement Newscast for an update on in-person schooling at Albemarle County and Charlottesville City Schools. A Charlottesville committee charged with advising the school board on the eventual transition to in-person instruction is recommending that virtual learning continue through the end of the calendar year. The second nine-week academic period begins on November 9th, and the COVID-19 Advisory Committee recommends waiting until January to begin a phased approach to in-person education. The committee is recommending that pre-K through 6th grade students have the option of returning to school four days a week beginning on either January 11th or January 19th. If demand is high, this could be switched to a two-day hybrid model instead. The group recommends that 7th grade through 12th grade could begin in-person instruction two days a week beginning on February 1st. The email sent to parents includes a question about why the committee recommends waiting. The statement from Superintendent Rosa Atkins states that much of the committee's conversations have focused on Charlottesville's data, including the higher-than-recommended case counts that are presently two times higher than the CDC's threshold for highest risk. Also, the beginning of flu season is about to happen and could have an impact, as well as travel during the Thanksgiving and winter breaks. 
The information is just a recommendation and is not intended to be construed as a plan. The Albemarle School Board voted 4-3 to last week to have kindergarten through third grade students resume in-person education two days a week on a hybrid model beginning on November 9th. What is known as Stage 3 would involve around 4,000 students, or 2,000 students a day. Virtual learning would continue for most pupils, though optional in-person access would be extended to English learners, special education students, and students exhibiting a lack of engagement in the virtual experience. This stage would also allow athletics and extracurricular activities to recur upon individual approval. Slides provided in advance of the meeting state that there would be no more than 12 students in each classroom at any given time. One of the metrics the school board will be asked to take into consideration tonight is a dashboard provided by the Centers for Disease Control that has core indicators that include the total number of new cases per 100,000 in the past 14 days and the percentage of positive tests during the past two weeks. On the dashboard, the former is colored in the higher risk category and the latter is in the moderate risk category. The slides are available for your review in the newsletter. What is known as Stage 3 will also involve more in-person students for instruction on English as a second language, special education, and for those without broadband internet. This was the recommendation of Superintendent Matthew Haas. Here's Kate Acuff, representative from the Jack Jewett Magisterial District. It is, it is our job, of course, to balance the expert advice we have about the health and safety issues in school against what's best in the best educational interests of our kids. Acuff said she was concerned about the potential for the achievement gap to grow and that parents should have the option to decide for themselves whether to proceed with in-person instruction. Before the vote, one of the members said they got an email from a bus driver concerned that students on pupil transport would not be sitting six feet apart from each other because all seats would be used. One administration official acknowledged that would be the case, but that mask wearing and hand sanitizing would be sufficient mitigation. Another school board member asked whether athletic activity would include competition. So good question, Jay Thomas, Director of Secondary Education. Our athletic directors have been working um, uh, through a lot of different protocols. Uh, this In July, uh, for three weeks, they actually piloted conditioning. Um, what would happen is they are in the process of putting together and finalizing protocols and procedures for each of the sports to be able to condition in November. But VHSL sports actually start December, the first week of December. Superintendent Matthew Haas said there are already 1,000 students whose parents or guardians have opted for in-person instruction. Many of these are people who have not been able to afford private instruction. The people who have the means uh, are have their children either in pods in the community, spending thousands and thousands of dollars uh, to pay, I hate to say it, but paying some of our teachers who've resigned or gone on long-term leave uh, to be their teachers in that pod. Haas said attendance for synchronous virtual learning for high school students is below 60% for those on free or reduced lunch. School board members Kate Acuff, Dave Oberg, Jono Alcaro, and Katrina Carlson voted for the move to Stage 3. Graham Page, Judy Lee, and Ellen Osborne voted against. Let's hear some of the voices. Osborne said she was concerned that some of the students would have new teachers. We always hear how important relationships are, and now we're willing to 
disrupt that for some for uh, going to school every other day, and I, I'm not convinced that the trade-off is worth it. Lee thought the move will be premature. The risk is still great. I still think that the risk is great, and then we're going to break that for the reward that is, um, for me, questionable in terms of you know two full days for kids, um, and then three full days of asynchronous. And then um, breaking these relationships. Page cited three reasons why he voted against the proposal. And that's the fact that um, the cases in our area continue to rise. The positivity rate is above the state average. And we can't really say with any certainty what's the transmission rate going to be because we don't have walls that separate us from UVA or the city. Dave Oberg understood all of these arguments. My gut, my just my gut, my heart says, why would we risk it? But my brain says, listen, we have experts who have done this analysis, who've said, look, as long as these things are followed, it's safe. And... I don't, I don't have any reason to doubt that analysis. Acuff said if the number of cases suddenly rises with more outbreaks, they can reconsider the decision. Haas has the authority to go back to a lower stage at any point. I was very much heartened by the improvements in our communication with the, school, with the, the health department, uh, the improvements in testing ability, the protocols for contact tracing, um, and and just the turnaround in, in terms of the testing. After the vote, Page said the board would pull together to support the transition, despite the split vote. So we'll be moving forward then as a unified system, not as 4-3 split, but as a 7-0 unified division. The Charlottesville Community Engagement Newscast is produced by Sean Tubbs and comes out every weekday at communityengagement.substack.com. Well, that does it for this week's edition of Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. My name's Mary Garner McGee. Our assistant producer this week is Jiho Kim. Our theme song is Kyoja Beat by Marin Alasco and Jay Pun. This is Soundboard. Soundboard.